Aphorisms 45 to 60 of Book 1 of the New Organon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Shaw. The New Organon by Francis Bacon. Translated by James Spedding, Robert Leslie Ellis, and Douglas Denon Heath. Aphorisms 45 to 60 of Book 1. Aphorism 45. The human understanding is of its own nature prone to suppose the existence of more order and regularity in the world than it finds. And though there be many things in nature which are singular and unmatched, yet it devises for them parallels and conjugates and relatives which do not exist. Hence the fiction that all celestial bodies move in perfect circles, spirals and dragons being, except in name, utterly rejected. Hence, too, the element of fire with its orb is brought in, to make up the square with the other three which the sense perceives. Hence also the ratio of density of the so-called elements is arbitrarily fixed at ten to one, and so on of other dreams. And these fancies affect not dogmas only, but simple notions also. Aphorism 46. The human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, either as being the received opinion, or as being agreeable to itself, draws all things else to support and agree with it. And though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side, yet these it either neglects and despises, or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects, in order that by this great and pernicious predetermination the authority of its former conclusions may remain inviolate. And therefore it was a good answer that was made by one who, when they showed him hanging in a temple a picture of those who had paid their vows as having escaped shipwreck, and would have him say whether he did not now acknowledge the power of the gods, I asked he again, but where are they painted that were drowned after their vows? And such is the way of all superstition, whether in astrology, dreams, omens, divine judgments, or the like, wherein men, having a delight in such vanities, mark the events where they are fulfilled, but where they fail, though this happened much oftener, neglect and pass them by. But with far more subtlety does this mischief insinuate itself into philosophy and the sciences, in which the first conclusion colors and brings into conformity with itself all that come after, though far sounder and better. Besides, independently of that delight in vanity which I have described, it is the peculiar and perpetual error of the human intellect to be more moved and excited by affirmatives than by negatives, whereas it ought properly to hold itself indifferently disposed toward both alike. Indeed, in the establishment of any true axiom, the negative instance is the more forcible of the two. Aphorism 47. The human understanding is moved by those things most which strike and enter the mind simultaneously and suddenly, and so fill the imagination. And then it feigns and supposes all other things to be somehow, though I cannot see how, similar to those few things by which it is surrounded. But for that going to and fro to remote and heterogeneous instances by which axioms are tried as in the fire, the intellect is altogether slow and unfit, unless it be forced thereto by severe laws and overruling authority. Aphorism 48. The human understanding is unquiet, it cannot stop or rest, and still presses onward, but in vain. Therefore it is that we cannot conceive of any end or limit to the world, but always as of necessity it occurs to us that there is something beyond. Neither, again, can it be conceived how eternity has flowed down to the present day, for that distinction which is commonly received of infinity in time past and in time to come can by no means hold. For it would thence follow that one infinity is greater than another, and that infinity is wasting away and tending to become finite. The like subtlety arises touching the infinite divisibility of lines. 
from the same inability of thought to stop. But this inability interferes more mischievously in the discovery of causes, for although the most general principles in nature ought to be held merely positive as they are discovered, and cannot with truth be referred to a cause, nevertheless the human understanding, being unable to rest, still seeks something prior in the order of nature. And then it is that in struggling toward that which is farther off, it falls back upon that which is nearer at hand, namely on final causes, which have relation clearly to the nature of man rather than to the nature of the universe, and from this source have strangely defiled philosophy. But he is no less an unskilled and shallow philosopher who seeks causes of that which is most general than he who in things subordinate and subaltern omits to do so. Aphorism 49. The human understanding is no dry light, but receives an infusion from the will and affections, whence proceed sciences which may be called sciences as one would. For what a man had rather were true he more readily believes. Therefore he rejects difficult things from impatience of research, sober things because they narrow hope, the deeper things of nature from superstition, the light of experience from arrogance and pride, lest his mind should seem to be occupied with things mean and transitory, things not commonly believed out of deference to the opinion of the vulgar, Numberless and short are the ways, and sometimes imperceptible, in which the affections color and infect the understanding. Aphorism 50. But by far the greatest hindrance and aberration of the human understanding proceeds from the dullness, incompetency, and deceptions of the senses, in that things which strike the sense outweigh things which do not immediately strike it, though they be more important. Hence it is that speculation commonly ceases where sight ceases, insomuch that of things invisible there is little or no observation. Hence, all the working of the spirits enclosed in tangible bodies lies hid and unobserved of men. So also, all the more subtle changes of form in the parts of coarser substances, which they commonly call alteration, though it is in truth local motion through exceedingly small spaces, is in like manner unobserved. And yet, unless these two things just mentioned be searched out and brought to light, nothing great can be achieved in nature, as far as the production of works is concerned. So again, the essential nature of our common air, and of all bodies less dense than air, which are very many, is almost unknown. For the sense by itself is a thing infirm and erring. Neither can instruments for enlarging or sharpening the senses do much. But all the truer kind of interpretation of nature is affected by instances and experiments fit and apposite. Wherein the sense decides touching the experiment only, and the experiment touching the point in nature and the thing itself. Aphorism 51 the human understanding is of its own nature prone to abstractions and gives a substance and reality to things which are fleeting. But to resolve nature into abstractions is less to our purpose than to dissect her into parts, as did the school of Democritus, which went further into nature than the rest. Matter, rather than form, should be the object of our attention. Its configurations and changes of configuration, and simple action, and law of action or motion. For forms are figments of the human mind, unless you will call those laws of action forms. Aphorism 52. Such, then, are the idols which I call idols of the tribe, and which take their rise either from the homogeneity of the substance of the human spirit, or from its preoccupation, or from its narrowness, or from its restless motion, or from an infusion of the affections, or from the incompetency of the senses, or from the mode of impression. Aphorism 53. The idols of the cave take their rise in the peculiar constitution, mental or bodily, of each individual, and also in education, habit, and accident. Of this kind there is a great number and variety, but I will instance those the pointing out of which contains the most important caution 
and which have most effect in disturbing the clearness of the understanding. Aphorism 54. Men become attached to certain particular sciences and speculations, either because they fancy themselves the authors and inventors thereof, or because they have bestowed the greatest pains upon them and become most habituated to them. But men of this kind, if they betake themselves to philosophy in contemplation of a general character, distort and color them in obedience to their former fancies, a thing especially to be noticed in Aristotle, who made his natural philosophy a mere bondservant to his logic, thereby rendering it contentious and well-nigh useless. The race of chemists, again out of a few experiments of the furnace, have built up a fantastic philosophy framed with reference to a few things. And Gilbert also, after he had employed himself most laboriously in the study and observation of the lodestone, proceeded at once to construct an entire system in accordance with his favorite subject. Aphorism 55. There is one principal and as it were radical distinction between different minds in respect of philosophy and the sciences, which is this, that some minds are stronger and apter to mark the differences of things, others to mark their resemblances. The steady and acute mind can fix its contemplations and dwell and fasten on the subtlest distinctions. The lofty and discursive mind recognizes and puts together the finest and most general resemblances. Both kinds, however, easily err in excess, by catching the one at gradations, the other at shadows. Aphorism 56. There are found some minds given to an extreme admiration of antiquity, others to an extreme love and appetite for novelty, but few so duly tempered that they can hold the mean, neither carping at what has been well laid down by the ancients, nor despising what is well introduced by the moderns. This, however, turns to the great injury of the sciences and philosophy, since these affectations of antiquity and novelty are the humors of partisans rather than judgments, and truth is to be sought for not in the felicity of any age, which is an unstable thing, but in the light of nature and experience, which is eternal. These factions, therefore, must be abjured, and care must be taken that the intellect be not hurried by them into assent. Aphorism 57. Contemplations of nature and of bodies in their simple form break up and distract the understanding, while contemplations of nature and bodies in their composition and configuration overpower and dissolve the understanding, a distinction well seen in the school of Leucippus and Democritus as compared with the other philosophies. For that school is so busied with the particles that it hardly attends to the structure, while the others are so lost in admiration of the structure that they do not penetrate to the simplicity of nature. These kinds of contemplation should therefore be alternated and taken by turns, so that the understanding may be rendered at once penetrating and comprehensive, and the inconveniences above mentioned with the idols which proceed from them may be avoided. Aphorism 58. Let such then be our provision and contemplative prudence for keeping off and dislodging the idols of the cave, which grow for the most part either out of the predominance of a favorite subject, or out of an excessive tendency to compare or to distinguish, or out of partiality for particular ages, or out of the largeness or minuteness of the objects contemplated. And, generally, let every student of nature take this as a rule, that whatever his mind seizes and dwells upon with peculiar satisfaction is to be held in suspicion, and that so much the more care is to be taken in dealing with such questions to keep the understanding even and clear. Aphorism 59. But the idols of the marketplace are the most troublesome of all, idols which have crept into the understanding through the alliances of words and names. For men believe that their reason governs words. But it is also true that words react on the understanding, and this it is that has rendered philosophy and the sciences sophistical and inactive. 
Now words, being commonly framed and applied according to the capacity of the vulgar, follow those lines of division which are most obvious to the vulgar understanding. And whenever an understanding of greater acuteness or a more diligent observation would alter those lines to suit the true divisions of nature, words stand in the way and resist the change. Whence it comes to pass that the high and formal discussions of learned men end oftentimes in disputes about words and names, with which, according to the use and wisdom of the mathematicians, it would be more prudent to begin, and so by means of definitions reduce them to order. Yet even definitions cannot cure this evil in dealing with natural and material things, since the definitions themselves consist of words, and those words beget others, so that it is necessary to recur to individual instances, and those in due series and order, as I shall say presently when I come to the method and scheme for the formation of notions and axioms. Aphorism 60. The idols imposed by words on the understanding are of two kinds. They are either names of things which do not exist, for as there are things left unnamed through lack of observation, so likewise are there names which result from fantastic suppositions, and to which nothing in reality corresponds. Or they are names of things which exist, but yet confused and ill-defined, and hastily and irregularly derived from realities. Of the former kind are fortune, the prime mover, planetary orbits, elements of fire, and like fictions which owe their origin to false and idle theories. And this class of idols is more easily expelled, because to get rid of them it is only necessary that all theories should be steadily rejected and dismissed as obsolete. But the other class, which springs out of a faulty and unskillful abstraction, is intricate and deeply rooted. Let us take, for example, such a word as humid, and see how far the several things which the word is used to signify agree with each other. And we shall find the word humid to be nothing else than a mark loosely and confusedly applied to denote a variety of actions which will not bear to be reduced to any constant meaning. For it both signifies that which easily spreads itself round any other body, and that which in itself is indeterminate and cannot solidize, and that which readily yields in every direction, and that which easily divides and scatters itself, and that which easily unites and collects itself, and that which readily flows and is put in motion, and that which readily clings to another body and wets it, and that which is easily reduced to a liquid or being solid easily melts. Accordingly, when you come to apply the word, if you take it in one sense, flame is humid, if in another, air is not humid, if in another, fine dust is humid, if in another, glass is humid. So that it is easy to see that the notion is taken by abstraction only from water, and common in ordinary liquids, without any due verification. There are, however, in words, certain degrees of distortion and error. One of the least faulty kinds is that of names of substances, especially of lowest species and well deduced. For the notion of chalk and of mud is good, of earth bad. A more faulty kind is that of actions, as to generate, to corrupt, to alter. The most faulty is of qualities, except such as are the immediate objects of the sense, as heavy, light, rare, dense, and the like. Yet in all these cases some notions are of necessity a little better than others, in proportion to the greater variety of subjects that fall within the range of the human sense. End of Aphorisms 45 to 60 of Book 1 Recording by Alan Shaw